0: Council to President Trump, Jenna
3: Ellis.
2: Well, good morning. And we start in Hawaii, where just a few minutes ago, uh, Maui fires live updates from NBC. And also according to the Washington Post and other outlets, 36 are dead as thousands flee this unprecedented disaster. And we need to be praying Uh, for everyone in Maui and um, on the other islands of Hawaii for uh, this raging wildfire. Um, It is just absolutely tragic. If you look at the photos uh, that are coming out, it's just, it's total devastation in uh, some of these areas in Maui. And um, our good friend Tulsi Gabbard posted uh, a video asking for prayer for uh, the people of Hawaii. And you can uh, go and listen to that on her social media page, um, among other things. We need to be praying. Uh, That the Lord would uh, spare the rest of the island. Also, breaking yesterday afternoon, a a congressional subpoenaed document reveals that the FBI Richmond field office coordinated with multiple field offices, not just one, as uh, FBI Director Christopher Wray had testified to Congress. And he had previously said that the actions were limited to a single office in targeting traditional Catholics as domestic terrorists. This is absolutely ridiculous, contrary to the First Amendment. And Congressman Jim Jordan will join us later on in the program to talk about that and the letter that he and Congressman Mike Johnson sent yesterday afternoon to Director uh, Christopher Ray. But we're going to start in Iowa and welcome in uh, Bob Vander Plaats from the uh, CEO of the Family Leader. And uh, Bob, thanks so much for joining us.
3: Thank you, Jen. It's always a pleasure to be with you, especially bright and early in the morning.
2: <laughs> yes, it is bright and early, and uh, you know I, the the Family Leader Summit uh, that was just a few weeks ago. I think is going to be uh, looked back as kind of the the initial kickoff, really, of the uh, the presidential race in 2024, and was really the the first important. Uh, presidential forum. So uh, looking back on on that, um, how important do you think that was specifically for Iowa but then overall for the presidential race?
3: I think it was really important. Uh, First of all, the Family Leadership Summit was six months and one day to the Iowa caucus date. And so that's where it was kind of the official, unofficial kickoff, in particular for the Iowa caucuses, but maybe the presidential campaign as a whole. Uh, Tucker Carlson interviewed six of the candidates, uh, from Ray, from Swamy to DeSantis to Mickey Haley to Tim Scott, Mike Pence, and uh, Asa Hutchison. Uh, obviously, which was missing was uh, Donald Trump, but that's kind of his strategy right now, not to be on multiple candidate debate stages. But this was a one-on-one interview with Tucker Carlson to really reveal character, who they are as a person, can we trust them? Capacity? Are they prepared to do the job? And really, chemistry—is this their Esther moment? I mean, can can they win in twenty twenty four as God called them to this at this time?
2: And and this uh, the Family Leader Summit um, is a group of evangelical Christians. I mean, this is not a um, CNN or Fox News sort of town hall <laughs> where it's a, it's just a bunch of politicos. And so, uh, why is that particularly important? Uh, to the evangelical vote, which which I think is, is going to be a huge piece for whoever gets the nomination.
3: Well, there's no doubt. The evangelical vote is crucial, uh, not only in the Iowa caucuses, but in the Republican primary. But then, as Donald Trump would tell you, or George W. Bush would tell you, or anybody else, it's crucial to win the presidency in a general election. And so this is our 12th annual summit, Jenna, and we always tagline it as principle over politics. It's not a party event. It's not a Republican event. It's really not even a candidate event. But we thread it with biblical worldviews. We had teaching from Alistair Begg, uh, sanctity of human life message from Dr. Bill Lyle, plus a lot of other messages calling our audience to look higher, to think bigger, and to expect more than just politics. But then we want leadership application. That's where we insert Tucker Carlson with these candidates how will these candidates lead if they are president, and basically from a secure foundation, which you and I know is a biblical worldview. So it's a very unique summit. It has grown dramatically over the years, and we are very pleased to have AFA's partnership this year as well.
2: Yes, and and I'm speaking with Bob Vanderplatz, who is uh, with the family uh, leader, the CEO and president of the family leader. And you have used um, the hashtag choose well 2024 uh, prolifically on social media. And I like that because as you've described, Bob um, choosing well and Asking more of our leaders and being principled is a biblical worldview application of what our civil government is all about and making sure that this is principle above politics or personality and not separating the two to say, well, we're just going to be Christians in our churches. But when it comes to politics, then we can use some other metric to determine how we exercise our vote. And so this is a very uh, contentious Republican principle primary. And um, so what is your thought process behind uh, particularly that hashtag, but also how would you encourage um, our listeners here to understand that application in terms of exercising their vote in consideration of 2024?
3: Yeah, really good question. A couple of things on that. Number one, when in 2014 was my first journey to the nation of Israel. Uh, I went with Rick Santorum And it was more of a geopolitical versus a a biblical journey. And we met with a lot of government leaders, and one in particular government leader that a lot of your listeners would know, but I won't mention his name. But he took me aside, knowing that I was from Iowa, and he pointed in my chest and he said, you choose well. And so I've taken that message to our audience about we need to choose well, and we believe government is, is an institution of God. We believe those who serve in government are ministers of God. And therefore, we challenge our base all the time. Don't ever lower the bar for a minister of God, especially in the United States and especially for the president of the United States. That is the, probably the biggest platform in the world to really showcase the fruits of the Spirit while being a bold and courageous leader. So you can walk and chew gum at the same time. And so that's what we highly encourage uh, our base to look at.
2: And and that is, of course, the biblical worldview, and uh, and not separating. Our Christian faith from our politics, and um, and I've gotten a lot of questions uh, from listeners specifically to, to this show as well about uh, Vivek Ramaswamy and uh, his Hindu faith. And you know he's been a good friend of mine uh, personally for a number of years, and he's joined the program uh, quite frequently. And uh, and he says a lot of really great things, and has a lot of really great policy. Uh, but the question is, can a Christian vote for a Hindu, particularly when Tim Scott, Mike Pence, um, Governor DeSantis, are all uh, saying, well, we, they are solidly Christians. And so what is um, your analysis and encouragement for uh, Christians who are contemplating uh, that issue?
3: Hey, again, a really, a really good question. Uh, Vivek is a friend of ours as well, and he's doing really, really well here. People are really embracing him. They love what he, what, what, what he says. The good thing about Vivek, <clears throat> excuse me, he's very authentic, and he's authentic even with his faith, is saying, listen, I'm not a Christian, but as a Hindu, in his strand of Hinduism, he says there's one true God, and he shares the Judeo-Christian values and virtues. Uh, now, it all comes down to choices, choices in a primary,
2: and you're going to have a
3: lot of candidates in a primary, and then it's going to be a choice in a general. But what I'd say is that if you go through the scriptures, God has used a lot of people Uh, those who were with him and those who weren't necessarily with him to advance his will. Uh, But if this was of a Vivek Ramaswamy versus a Joe Biden or a Governor Newsom or something like that, I think the choice would be very, very easy. When it gets into the primary, it gets to be more complicated because, as you mentioned, there's a lot of candidates uh, who are trying to emerge and trying to attract that evangelical vote. But I would say from watching and observing the state of Iowa, people are not discounting Vivek Ramaswamy because of his Hindu faith. They see him embracing the Judeo-Christian values and virtues and about what this country needs from leadership today. So I think his voice is very welcomed in this process.
2: And that's good to hear. And I'm speaking with Bob Vanderplatz, who is the president and CEO of the Family Leader. And um, I certainly agree with you that if this is between a Vivek and the so-called Catholic Joe Biden, then there's no contest at all. And so it's not a matter of what people say. It's what they actually do and what they sincerely believe. And um, and so you also were in I think you were in Florida um with Governor DeSantis for church, or did he did he come to Iowa? Because you, you posted a picture with uh, Governor and Casey DeSantis at church.
3: Yeah, they, they were actually in Iowa. Uh, they were doing campaign events, uh, and obviously they, they have to do a lot of campaign events in Iowa. And so they reached out that they are going to be in late Saturday night, but they had an opening Sunday morning, and uh, would they be welcomed at our churches? And of course you're welcomed at our church. And so Darla and I were thrilled to be able to accompany uh, Governor Ron and Casey DeSantis to our church. It was really a good experience. And the good experience, Jenna, was afterwards. We went out into the narthex, into the lobby, just saying we'd shake a few hands and then honestly get out of there. And just organically. uh, We have three services, and organically at the 930 service, People just started forming up lines uh, to meet him, get pictures with him, the first lady as well. Uh, I told Darla, I said, if this is any indication of the attraction he has to the the typical Iowa caucus voter, uh, things could go very well for him.
2: Mm, that is that is great. And so what is your impression of uh, Governor DeSantis's faith and uh, how authentic he is when it comes to attracting the evangelical vote?
3: Well, I think his faith is very authentic. I think mean, he and Casey are both very grounded, very solid. Uh, I think this, uh, this uh, breast cancer that Casey went through, I think it really solidified their faith. As you know, a lot of times it's during the storms that we draw closer to God. It's not something that Governor DeSantis truly wants to wear on his sleeve. or You know, he's kind of like, you know, observe me versus listen to me, quote scripture, those types of things. And I think what you see is that he comes from definitely a solid biblical worldview as he looks to apply that in his leadership, whether it's governor of Florida or it's Canada or the president of the United States. So I think that they're solid, and I think his faith does motivate and drive him.
2: And in just the last few minutes I have with you, uh, Bob Vanderplatz, uh, what about Donald Trump as well? Because, um, you know, I'm old enough to remember that when as a Christian in 2016 supporting him, I was called fake Christian and you can't support that. And now uh, for some of the always Trumpers, it's you're not a Christian if you don't support Donald Trump. And I reject both of those premises. Uh, but what has been your impression of Donald Trump as well?
3: Well, with President Trump, he, he's he been a friend of mine for over a dozen years. And I told uh, then businessman Trump when he got the nomination and he still wanted my endorsement. And I told him, I'm not going to endorse you, but I'll be a friend to you and a friend to you. I'll pray for you daily. I'll cheer you on and I'll be a voice of accountability when you go outside the line. Now, I've been very open. I I voted for Donald Trump twice. I wrote op-eds why others could vote for Donald Trump twice in both elections, those things. But I think our job as believers is basically to be a Nathan to a David, to be a friend, but also to be a friend that's willing to speak the truth when the truth is needed. Obviously, God used Donald Trump and his administration uh, for a lot of good things to be done. But to say that our bar, our our authenticity of Christianity is tied up to any person, whether that's Jenna Ellis, Bob Marapaz, or Donald Trump, that's a huge mistake. That's where we need to look higher. Our help comes from the Lord, not from an individual
2: amen to that amen we'll choose well 2024 bob banner always appreciate you joining thank you so much president and ceo of the family leader you can follow him on social media and we didn't have time to talk about the abortion debate i will get uh, with my next guest but you can also see his conversation with dana bash on cnn uh, on his twitter feed as well which is very interesting but we'll be right back with more here on jenna ellis in the morning
0: Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio.
2: Welcome back. And as most of you know, unfortunately, issue one in Ohio did not pass. And uh, that was, of course, the push to uh, get... Christians and get everyone out uh, to vote, so that the threshold of changing and modifying or amending the state constitution would go up to sixty percent rather than a simple majority, uh, in anticipation of likely an abortion uh, proposition being on the ballot in Ohio to uh, to have a constitutional amendment that would protect um, abortion so-called rights and. Uh, Now that that issue one has failed in Ohio, um, abortion then will be more likely to be on that agenda in Ohio. And uh, we need to be praying for that. And I think that abortion is going to become uh, an even more focal point not just for the Republican primary, but also and especially for the general election in 2024. So here to discuss is our good friend Steve Dace, who is with The Blaze and host of The Steve Dace Show. Good morning and welcome back.
0: Always good to talk to you, Jenna. Thank you.
2: Thanks. So, um, so I actually just got a, a an email from Politico Playbook. And uh, for, for those of you who aren't aware of, of Playbook, that's kind of the insider's uh, guide to everything going on in D.C. and across the country uh, for politics. And the headline uh, here is the, the dim divide over abortion in 2024. Um, so, Steve, uh, do you agree with me that this is going to be a really big issue, not just in the Republican primary, but then in the general? Because I don't think that either party actually agrees on what their platform is
0: i completely agree and you know really my main concern is affirmatively driving our own agenda and what we think and that's what i am concerned about what what i when i we have had this we've had debates um for a long time uh, on strategy on the pro-life side and um i never understood for decades i, I mean i'm is it, this is a personal issue to me. Kid born to a 15-year-old mom who almost aborted him, on top of a Christian conviction and a moral imperative. I mean, I, I, I've got members of my family um, that were, you know, um, my wife was told we, we should consider aborting um, our, our daughter because uh, she was a single vessel cord and may not make it. I mean, I, I've got people in my ho- in my family who are the rape and incest exceptions that I now have, uh, I, I love and know their names. So every part of this debate, my family, my story has touched. So it, I've never understood for decades why we never argued the premise of our argument. What is a life and when does life begin? Instead, we argued the premise of their argument. Well, when does the fetus feel pain? When is it fully developed? Those are Malthusian ethics. Those are utilitarian ethics. That's the premise of their argument. And I fell out of favor with a lot of, frankly, big-time pro-life organizations by asking them, when are we going to you know, be pro-life maybe? And then a few years ago, we got kind of smart. We still didn't go as far as I wanted to go, which is look at the Fifth Amendment and say no person is denied life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And go back to the 72 Supreme Court hearing originally with NARAL admitting to Byron White, the justice, that the state determined – that if fetus was a person under the Constitution, it would be very difficult to make their case. But at least we were making the right case. And we started passing these heartbeat laws, like in places like Iowa, where I live. And lo and behold, Jenna, wouldn't you know, as an attorney, when you actually challenge the premise of the other side's argument, you have a much greater chance of winning your own. And so in about five or (laughs) ten years, we did what what the previous 40 years did not do, create the legal dynamic and precedent. Uh, uh, ecosystem that led to the overturning of Roe, but I think now we're in another trap on our side. I think that so much was, so much money was raised nationally, so much messaging was about vote Republican for good judges to overturn Roe v. Wade, that now that the dog has caught the ambulance here, no one knows what to do, and so we're kind of reverting back to well, now we need a 15-week national ban, which they don't even have the votes in Congress for that among Republicans anyway. And the reality is, even if I agree with that, and principally I do, but you know, strategically, this now, the, that, that's not where the fight is happening. The fight is happening on a state-to-state level. And the other side is much better organized and much better funded for this. And if you look at what happened last year in Michigan and, and just the other night in Ohio, these are two states that border each other that have completely different political trajectories. Basically, Gretchen Whitmer has done to the Republican Party in Michigan What Ron DeSantis did to the Democrat Party in Florida. It doesn't exist. It doesn't have money. It's just a shell operation. It's a letterhead. On the other hand, Republicans in Ohio are the most ascendant they have ever been. And yet, the same result happened in both states. When they put referendums on the ballot pertaining to the issue of abortion directly to people, either directly or indirectly, they got their way because they were ready to go to war. And my fear, if I'm going to be blunt, is. I think too many pro-life groups that exist in Washington, D.C., are so focused on Washington, D.C., and their own fundraising operations and how that pertains to impacting Washington, D.C., that their pants are totally down and they're completely unprepared for the state-by-state battle that is now going to take place. And, the, and it's going and, and to be hard for them to, to transition because I just don't know how much, more, how much money you can raise – for a national organization to fight a ballot measure in Ohio, a ballot measure in Michigan, a ballot measure in any other state. And the other side, I think, is much more prepared now for this next stage of warfare than we are.
2: I completely agree with you, uh, Steve Dace, and what's so frustrating is to see these really well-intentioned uh, national organizations being so unprepared to fight these fights on a state-by-state level. And in my former home state of, of Colorado, uh, the the small um, kind of you know, NGO that, that is there that is trying to fight for all of these different uh, family issues and uh, Christian values issues on the issue of abortion. There's just no funding, and it's it's such a small organization compared to Planned Parenthood that comes and spends you know millions of dollars, and uh, that has effectively turned that state blue. And we've seen that over the last. Um, decade and even even less than that. And it's really tragic to see that conservative organizations and Christian organizations really haven't been prepared for this. Um, So why? Why is that? I mean, we, we have been fighting for since 1973 to get Roe versus Wade overturned. And now that we finally did, it's like, why weren't we prepared to say, okay, now the obvious result of that is that it would become a state by state battle?
0: I will tell you, our, our, you should you should have on Gaston Mooney, who is our who's the president of the Blaze, and he used to he he was a, a top staffer for Jim DeMint on Capitol Hill for several years, and when you are the top staffer for who at the time was the top conservative in the Senate, then you basically are the senior staffer of all the other Senate conservative staffers, and I think you should have him on sometime to have him. He'll tell you he'll talk about it publicly. He doesn't hide it. Um, just some of the cynical politics that was played to the point that even among conservative Senate staffers, they they had a nickname for it, quote, Big Baby. Um, and And I think I get asked a lot in my line of work, whom would I donate to? Whom would I align with? You know, you and I were with separate campaigns, I think, probably in 2016. And so I was with the Cruz campaign. And one of our main objectives was to try to be the first campaign ever that really kind of aligned the, the, the large Christian conservative groups behind a singular candidate rather than having a splinter, uh, you know, so that the Jeb Bush candidate or a Mitt Romney candidate wins again. And so I was heavily involved in that effort. And one thing I can say without equivocation, and that's, you know, other than the fact you're a sweet gal, that's why I'm up here talking to AFR this morning, is of all these national organizations, I can count on a couple fingers— How many of them, I think, are can really move numbers on the ground, are even interested in moving numbers on the ground, and are not much more interested in the perception of their access and gravitas and reputations and direct mail fundraising and now social media fundraising and things of that nature. And if they're not number one on that list, they're number one B, and that's AFA. And it's probably mm-hmm. been a sim- simple decisions like the Wildman's never moving your organization to D.C. and keeping it in Tupelo, Mississippi, where if I want to fly down and meet with you all from where I live in Des Moines, it is still a two-day flight in the year 2020. <laughs> <Okay>? <laughs> but still. That, it's only that,
2: because that, Tupelo is that small.
0: <laughs> yes. Those kinds of subtle decisions are why your salt hasn't lost its savor. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and so that, I think, it speaks volumes. I think there's a lot of organizations that people donate to that maybe do a great job of organizing and educating on issues, but can't actually move any numbers, don't actually leverage. Politics isn't about access. That is a lie. We've told ourselves on the right going back to the 80s. Politics is about leverage. We practice access-based politics on the right. We want speakers. We want book deals. uh, we We want to be Fox News contributors. On the left, they want power. And so they practice leverage-based politics. And so what happened is their base has now leveraged their party's establishment to the point now that the the Democratic Party establishment is to the left of the average Democratic Party voter in America, because they've been so leveraged by that hardcore base. The exact opposite dynamic exists in the Republican Party. The average Republican that you elect is to the left of you. And that's because Mm -hmm. your grassroots and your leaders, they're about access. They're not about They're not about power. They they don't understand leverage. And the thing with your organization is going back to its very inception, it always has. And that's also why it's hated more than the others. It's also why it's more effective than the others.
2: And and the principles uh, will continue to remain the same because uh, biblical truth is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I'm so proud of AFA for never wavering uh, from that, and never wavering as as much as the Republican Party or conservatives can bend and flex to whatever wind of doctrine comes down or you know, from the Supreme Court, especially. Um, those principles never change. And and uh, and I think that you're absolutely right, Steve. That the, the access-driven politics of the Republican Party, um, especially as we see the younger Republicans and some of these, um, you know, bigger kind of conferences and other things where it is just about the, you know, the quick 10-minute speakers that are more like a political rally than actual engagement, where the Democrats understand that they actually want to change the world. And I think that's mm-hmm. a big difference. As much as Christians say, we want to be world changers, what are we doing to become world changers when we're just out they're getting the selfies, getting the signatures, getting, you know, wearing the hats, when the Democrats are the ones, unfortunately, that are making a lot of the headway. So what needs to change for the Republican Party and for, for conservatives to actually understand that we don't just have an argument on the life issues? We have the only sound argument and we have the only constitutional argument that, to borrow a phrase from the left, is the only viable argument. I think two things
0: one, we need to accept the reality that some of our excess-based model cannot be changed because we all do have to make a living. You know, um, Even though what we're doing is missional, we live in a, in a world of capitalism. And, and we don't have dozens of billionaire bundlers like the left does willing to cut all kinds of money to for us to do the hardest ideological uh, content, regardless of return on investment. We just don't have that level of private funding. And so we have to monetize directly off of our people um, and or directly off of the system. And we can't do anything about monetizing off a corrupt system. But if you're the people, if you're listening to me right now and and you're the people that they're monetizing off of, you're given 50 bucks a month to National Right to Life and Susan B. Anthony List and these groups, you know, you're a shareholder and a stakeholder and you need to challenge them. What is the strategy? What is the strategy post row? Instead of sitting here, well, we're going to force a 15-week national ban. They don't even have the votes in the Republican Party. It wouldn't get passed in the Senate anyway. So we're wasting our time using that as a cudgel. That's not a realistic option. All right, you want to put people on the record and know where they stand. I think that's useful. But that legislation won't actually happen. The battle is not happening there. The battle is happening in Columbus, Ohio. The battle is happening in Grand Rapids, Michigan. The the battle is happening in Boulder, Colorado, as you just said. So what is your strategy for those places? When are we going to empower local and state entities and chapters to fight those battles? Why is the head of Michigan Right to Life calling me Me, last year, two months before that election, saying, can you help us raise some money because we've got nothing? That's the Michigan chapter of National Right to Life. They hold the largest rally in American history every year. How do they have no money? And I think this is where the people now need to rise up and say to their leaders, where is the money? Where is the plan? What is the strategy? Stop sending Lindsey Graham to, 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 you know, to virtue signal on a 15-week ban that might be morally right, has no chance of passing, and isn't going anywhere, when meanwhile, over here, they're marching to Atlanta on us. That's where the battle is at. We need to actually fight them where they are, not where we want to be because it's easier for us to raise money off of. And I think that's where our audiences now have to rise up and start challenging these organizations to say, hey, we did what you told us to do. We voted Republican for better judges justices for 50 years. And finally, Donald Trump got it done. So now it's your turn. What is the plan What are you doing with all the money that we gave you with the strategy? And why aren't you prepared to fight this out in individual states? Stop sending Lindsey Graham to promote a piece of legislation that has no chance and is nothing other than, frankly, a waste of time or a fundraising scene. We need to go where Mm -hmm. the battle actually is
2: so well said uh steve days thank you so much for your insights and your passion for the truth and i could not agree more and i think that that is a valid question on a lot of fronts on every issue that concerns christians what is the strategy i think we should be asking that uh the strategy to get to 270 to win a presidential general election as well what is the strategy we need to be asking All of these things about every organization, every candidate. Uh, Really, really appreciate your uh, time and your thoughts. And we will be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the Morning.
0: Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio.
2: Welcome back, and as I said at the top of the show, the breaking news yesterday afternoon, Was that the subpoenaed document from the uh, House Judiciary Committee uh, reveals that the FBI Richmond field office coordinated with multiple field offices across the country to produce a memo targeting traditional Catholics as domestic terrorists? You will recall that FBI Director Ray previously said that the actions were limited to only a single field office. So, this, of course, is very important uh, in terms of the weapon. Of government, and so Congressman Jim Jordan, who is uh, the chairman of that committee and also on the Judiciary Committee, uh, joins me now. And uh, Congressman, so y- you and also um, Chairman Mike Johnson, a good friend of the show, you both sent a letter to uh, Christopher Ray uh, discussing this. And uh, w- yeah. what is your take?
1: Well, first of all, Christopher Ray said it was just it was just one field office you know, just this was a one-off, this was it, this was it, and, and he was aghast, and they withdrew it. Well, well, great, but turns out there was more than just the Richmond field office involved. Portland, Los Angeles were also involved in this this targeting of, of pro-life Catholics. I mean, you can read, read through the memo, and it was, if you're a pro-life Catholic who uh, engaged in traditional mass and you you think we need a secure border, basically politics in many ways... Uh, you were you were viewed as an extremist, as a radical extremist, according to the FBI. And so, um, what one is Christopher said one thing. It looks like that's not accurate. Two, they gave us such a redacted version of this the first time, and we we kept pushing it. It took us basically to um, threaten contempt to get a less redacted version, and then maybe three. The the big the big question I have is why did you redact this information in the first place? Why were you we trying to hide that Portland was involved with the with the With the Richmond office in putting this this whole memorandum together that was trying to develop sources inside the parish, inside the church, to snitch and spy on on pro-life Catholics. So uh, lots of questions, and we'll see what Mr. Ray's uh, response is.
2: Yeah, and and this raises so many questions and, frankly, concerns uh, with how not only the FBI, but also, uh, you know, Biden's executive branch are treating uh, the religious faith communities, and uh, I mean, this just runs completely contrary to the First Amendment and to religious freedom, yes. that the government can't tell uh, anyone how to practice their faith in terms of what their beliefs are, and certainly not on anything that's political opinion. I mean, so, so what's, yes. um, what is the remedy here?
1: Well, you, you use the power of the purse. Well, first of all, you, you highlight the, what, what's going on. You get the facts to the American people. And sometimes just by doing that, you can have an impact. Uh, a, a great example is what the IRS recently announced. Two and a half weeks ago, the IRS announced that they were no longer going to be sending agents out for unannounced visits to American citizens' homes. And I think that's a direct result of our work, specifically when we uncovered what happened to Matt Taibbi while he was testifying. The IRS was knocking on his door. We had a constituent in our district, the 4th District of Ohio, who had an uh, IRS agent announce, uh, come unannounced to her home, used an alias, pretended he was some other name, you know, uh, and and she actually thought it was like a scam. She thought this guy was trying to rip them off. She called the police. This is how bad. So the, FDA, or excuse me, the IRS has announced they are no longer going to be doing this. I think it's because of, of us highlighting issues. So that's one. But then you also use the power of the purse, and you say, if we're going to send taxpayer money to the IRS, you can't do certain things with tax dollars. And you certainly aren't going to get a new headquarters uh, like they're pushing for uh, in this uh, current appropriations process.
2: And uh, Congressman Jim Jordan, so how firm are is the Republican majority on sticking to this? I mean, there are obviously uh, fighters like you, Congressman Mike Johnson and others, that see these obvious uh, remedies and and the issues that are implicit in this type of FBI and IRS action. But but is the Republican majority firm and together on this?
1: I think so. I, I really do, because the American people see it. Uh, they, they see this attack on the First Amendment. They see this unequal application of the law. They see it with what's happened to President Trump. Uh, they see it with the with cozy uh, plea agreement that they tried to get past the judge in the court a couple weeks ago relative to Hunter Biden. So I think the country sees it, and that emboldens members to do what they told the voters they were going to do when they put us in charge. And understand, Jenna, that but for us having the majority in the House of Representatives, I don't know that any of this material would be, would be public. I don't know that whistleblowers I – mean, we learned about this Catholic memo issue from a whistleblower. I don't know that these guys are, would, would come forward if they didn't, in the last Congress, think we were going to get the majority. And if we didn't get the majority, I don't know that they come forward. So um, that's why it matters. And uh, I think, I think um, my colleagues understand that we, uh, we, better, we better keep digging and get to the bottom of this stuff and then propose legislation, use the appropriations process uh, to stop it.
2: Yeah. And, and I completely agree with you that I don't think that any of this would have uh, been revealed. And in fact, I think and am of the opinion that uh, the the Biden administration and all of those cretins on the Democrat leftist side were counting on this never being revealed. And that's potentially why yep. they were so brazen in a lot of this. And yep. and we're seeing I to, the you're right. Yeah. And and I think that, you know, we're seeing the broader scope of all of this because it isn't just limited to, you know, one corrupt FBI director or one, you know, isolated pocket of a field office or, you know, one uh, bad apple in the midst of an entire, uh, you know, federal executive or uh, we're seeing so much with the weaponization of government. Um, I mean, what does that say to you in terms of how brazen the the Democrats and the leftists have been in trying to curtail the liberties and freedoms and rights, um, not only under the First Amendment, but under you know a lot of different provisions of the U.S. Constitution? Some of these basic fundamental freedoms that they're just trying to override.
1: Yeah, it's it's a scary time, and I think it underscores how important. The presidential election is um, next year, and how, uh, why I'm 100% in in support of President Trump getting back in the White House. You have to control the executive branch in in modern American government, modern American politics. You have to control the executive branch, the presidency, if if you're gonna if you're gonna make the kind of change that you need to make. And it's um, so I, I hope that that the, I think the country gets that and they understand how important this upcoming election is going to be. Um, and, and we got to get someone in there who's, who's willing to push back and willing to put in charge of these agencies, someone who respects the Constitution, most importantly, respects the First Amendment. Um, that that I think is just just of paramount importance.
2: Yeah. And, and has there been any discussion um, about possible impeachments of, you know, some of these um, some of these bad actors, including Joe Biden himself?
1: Well, the the speaker has been very clear, uh, Jenna, that um, you know we have a duty to do oversight, duty to do the investigations to get the truth that impacts what kind of legislation we may introduce, may try to pass, and how we handle the appropriations process. So we're going to continue to do that. But the speaker has been clear: if in fact we the evidence keeps piling up, and it sure is piling up now, but if it continues, and we have to go to an phase of of oversight and and a, a phase of of our investigation then we should do that. And, um, uh, so I, 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 agree with the speaker. If we get to that point, I'm convinced he will go there. Um, and you know, with Joe, with the, the, the Hunter Biden, Joe Biden family business operation. Now uh, that investigation, you're seeing more and more, you got dinners, you got phone calls, you got 30 some meetings that Joe Biden had with Hunter Biden's business partner. I mean, it sure is starting to pile up the evidence and the money and everything else. So, um, Uh, we'll just keep doing our work, and if we have to go there, we'll go there.
2: Good. Well, I mean, I think so many uh, of the American people uh, would like to see that, would like to see some accountability and uh, would like to, to, you know, to finally see um, some of this remedied. And I'm so grateful uh, for you and others that are working so diligently to protect the rights of um, American people. Because, I mean, this is just so ridiculous that religious mainline Catholics are being put on a domestic terrorism watch list. I mean, it's just, it's absurd. It's Orwellian. It's ridiculous. And, um, and so in just the last few minutes I have with you, Congressman Jim Jordan, and I so appreciate you always dropping by. Um, you say in your letter to Christopher Ray that uh, you are inviting him to correct his testimony that he previously provided because this new information raises additional concerns about accuracy, completeness, and truthfulness. And so yep. uh, you yep. are inviting him to amend his testimony and fully explain this. Um, what would you like to, without obviously revealing too much, uh, what would you most like to ask Him and hope that uh, he'll give you some straight answers on.
1: Well, he told us it was just it was a sort of a one-off. It was just Richmond. Looks like it looks based on the document that now has been been uh, they've gotten rid of some of the redactions. um, It looks like that's not the case. So, do you want to correct your testimony, amend your testimony that you uh, that you gave in front of the House Judiciary Committee? I think that's number one. Number two is why did you redact it in the first place? Why why didn't you just let us see the memorandum? And it's and it's largely unredacted form that that we finally got. I mean, I I I do not know why you didn't show us that in the first place of uh, this connection to the L.A. field office and the, and the Portland field office. So that I just don't understand. So we, we'd like to know some. Is there some rational explanation, or were you just trying to string this along? Tell us one thing, and then oh well, we were kind of wrong, and well we you know, and then it's something different because it's now been like a year since we first started to learn about this, almost a year. Um, I don't know, but the, the, we think the the American people, the taxpayers, are are entitled to answers to those uh, kind of kind of basic questions.
2: Absolutely, they are, and uh, you know this is what the Democrats love to do as well as just run out, run out the clock, and hope that uh, they they aren't held accountable. So, uh, looking forward to seeing what Christopher Ray's response is to this letter. Uh, but as yeah. always, Jim Jordan, thank you so much for everything uh, that you do. We all continue here at AFR to be praying for you and uh, the other great conservatives that are working so hard to protect the Constitution on Capitol Hill. So thank you so much.
1: You bet. Thank you, Jenna.
2: All right, so that is Congressman Jim Jordan, and you can find the full letter. Uh, That was sent to the Honorable Christopher Wray, uh, Director of the FBI, on the House Judiciary GOP X page, X, the app formerly known as Twitter. And uh, I would invite everyone uh, to follow the House Judiciary uh, page because a lot of this stuff and a lot of the breaking news is posted there. And you can read this in uh, its complete form. Obviously, I cover as much as I can here. I know other shows, uh, Today's Issues and others, uh, cover a lot but obviously we can't always get to everything uh, people always ask me how do I um, how do I prepare for shows and determine you know what to cover and um, it's always a matter of saying well what's the most important and what am I um, not covering so that I can get substantively to other things so um, so obviously there's a lot more content that I can post about on my X page as well you can always follow me there at Jenna Ellis esq is my personal page the show page is at jenna ellis am and then of course we also have american family news we have um, all of those other great pages for american family association and the american family radio network um, but i would encourage you um, I, I know that you know there's a lot of parents out there and um, you don't necessarily want your kids on social media that's totally fine that's a completely different contemplation but um but in terms of just news um i still think that x formerly known as twitter is a really good way to get all of these news and um, all of these news articles and the news alerts as soon as they drop. And so I subscribe, by the way, to everything. Um, This isn't just limited to uh, conservative news or conservative news outlets. I subscribe to everything because I want to know what the left is saying, uh, what the left is at, at a lot of times lying about what their worldview position is. Um, you can see through a lot of their more extreme um, outlets and some of these that, you know, say that they're news, but um, in my opinion, they're really not. You know, I'm talking about like Huffington Post, Vox, some of those that um, they, they definitely shape their bias of their news from a leftist progressive Worldview, and we need to know as Christians what's going on in our world. What uh, is everyone saying? Because um, there are a lot of people that only read those news outlets. So I want to know what are they saying. Are they um, saying things that are factually accurate? Um, and also, what is their opinion? How are they shaping their bias of the news? Because I have to be able to respond to that. And it's not that everything that I read, I just consume and automatically believe. I obviously will read content and and say, first of all, is it factually accurate? And, uh, and, you know, that, of course, depends on, you know, what trusted news sources you have. I always read everything with some skepticism. But then especially when it comes to opinion or it comes to phrasing or uh, the bias of that particular news outlet or even the particular writer, know whose pieces you're actually reading. Uh, often the byline. That it's called um, that is often just absorbed into the piece and people just scroll right on past that know who uh, the various authors are because there are some, you know, that write even for outlets that you wouldn't really think um, are are traditionally conservative, um, like Newsweek, for example. My good friend Josh Hammer, who is a stalwart conservative, excellent attorney. Um, you know, we've disagreed on some things, but you know, that's that's policy, that's debatable. But in terms of a fundamental originalist worldview of the U.S. Constitution, we agree on a lot. And he is an editor over at Newsweek, so I read everything from him that I can. So, anyway, all. All of that to say, uh, follow a lot of these accounts, know what's going on in the world, know what everyone is saying, and then decide for yourself, because we know that the ultimate standard is the biblical worldview. And we need to know how to analyze the news of our day, culture, politics, everything, in light of the truth, which is the person of God. We'll be back tomorrow with more here on Jenna Ellis in the Morning. Always reach me. Also, Jenna at AFR.net.
3: The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.